You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm the director of the Practice Resource Center and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Carla Eckhart. I'm a senior practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So today's guest was on the podcast with us exactly two years ago to talk about inventory attorneys. And that just happened to be the very last episode that we recorded before the pandemic began and we all started working from home. So we're excited to bring her back because we are now back in the office and we are welcoming back Patricia Sabitz to discuss the lawyer discipline process today. Since her last visit to the podcast, Patty was promoted to Deputy Director for the Lawyer Regulation Department of the Florida Bar. Patty received both her undergraduate and her law degree from the University of Miami. She's been with the bar since 1997 and was previously bar counsel with the Orlando branch of the Florida Bar, where she handled all aspects of bar disciplinary proceedings. Prior to working at the bar, Patty was an assistant public defender in the 20th Judicial Circuit in Fort Myers and was a senior attorney with the Department of Children and Families. She has done extensive appellate work, including oral argument before the Fifth District Court of Appeal and the Florida Supreme Court. Welcome to the show, Patty. Good morning, and thank you both for having me this morning. And hello, everyone out there. And I'm happy to go over um, our topic this morning of the lawyer discipline process. Great. So I think the disciplinary actions are likely the most closely read section of each edition of the Florida Bar News. And I have to say, I'm always amazed by the number of attorneys who seem to ignore the notices from the bar because they'll make a mention of that in the little description uh, when they have a complaint against them. So is this as common as it seems? Ignoring the bar. Ignoring the bar, that (laughs) that first letter. Unfortunately, yes, except I might take issue with the word ignoring. I don't, I, there's a, um, a portion of the population, the lawyer population that, that probably do truly intentionally ignore the bar. It's a small portion. Okay. The rest of the members may get that personal confidential letter from the bar, but think about it. You also get other information in writing from the bar. It might be mm-hmm. the, um, the different programs that are out there, the different membership programs that are out there, such as insurance or whatever. So in the light most favorable, a lot of mail comes in and it's hard to separate it, process it, make sure you do all the other things you've got to do professionally and personally. But the bar does not shoot it down and neither does the Supreme Court of Florida. So when the letter Mm -hmm. finally gets opened, matter of fact, I was, um, working on a case like that this morning, it took four weeks for whatever reason for the lawyer's letter to get opened by the lawyer or received by the lawyer. And that's one of those things. It's never too late. So if you do get that personal confidential letter, reach out to the person that sent it to you, tell them what happened and ask for a short enlargement of time because we'd rather know 
what the lawyer knows in response to what was involved in that letter, then assume those facts not in evidence. Okay. And so I'm glad you're saying that. We're trying to reassure our members. So I want to walk through the official steps of the lawyer discipline process, um, but we're also trying to take some of the terror out of that envelope arriving. So I'm going to offer some statistics for the bar member who has just received notice of their first bar complaint. According to the bar's website, in a typical year, the Attorney Consumer Assistance Program that we call ACAP receives over 16,000 requests for assistance, and only about 25% of those inquiries result in the opening of a disciplinary file. Last year, um, according to the website, there were 3,364 files opened, and which resulted in only 318 Supreme Court discipline cases. So it sounds like the numbers are on your right. side. It's so, not always bad. <laughs> so I'm saying all of this, go ahead and open the envelope when it arrives. So what happens when an attorney, and you said it may be inadvertent or it may be they're just too afraid to open it. What happens when a lot of time has passed and they have failed to respond to a complaint? What, what happens then? Well, you know, I said it, it's never too late. It is truly never too late. For example, that original letter that, that comes to the lawyer, if the lawyer doesn't respond for whatever reason, and usually there is some sort of reason, we kind of have to pull it out and get to it because as lawyers, you want to be strong for everybody. So it's not likely you're going to say these issues are going on in my life. Think about it. Lawyers rarely like to confess error. So we've got our staff review and that ACAP review. If you go past that, we've got our grievance committee review and they investigate and determine should formal charges be filed. But even in the situation where formal charges are filed and the the lawyer to that point hasn't responded, even at the proceedings that are, are designated before the Supreme Court, the lawyer can still appear and contact the bar counsel and bring forth that mitigation to the referee. It gets a little tricky if at all those stages of the proceeding, the lawyer completely you know, shuts down because then just like in a civil case, there can be a default judgment that proceeds to a, a sanction. But the, the bar has many resources out there to assist members that are suffering from whatever it may be. In the beginning, it was just alcohol addiction, and now it's any number of things, including issues dealing with ageism. You know, our, our population of membership is older and younger simultaneously. So I always tell people, use the bar's website as a resource. It is a, a depth of information and knowledge that is, is just unsurpassed based on some of the other state websites I've seen. And there is the Florida Lawyers Assistance Program that may be the conduit that helps that lawyer come up for air. So not not opening the envelope will not stop the process. So <laughs> that's what you really must know. There, it, the, avoiding it, it's still going to continue on. Right. Correct. Okay. So let's let's back up a little bit. Both you and Christine mentioned the Attorney Consumer Assistance Program and how they're the ones that receive requests for assistance, and that's where some complaint starts, but what are all the different ways that a complaint can be triggered? Is it just through ACAP? Can the bar trigger a complaint? How does that work? Excellent question. And the answer is yes to both. Typically, the request for assistance, which is just a, an exciting process that started about 10 years ago, 
solves a good number of those issues with the attorney-client relationship. And our ACAP program is able to kind of put that back on track. But the rules of procedure under the rules regulating the Florida Bar allow the Florida Bar to initiate a complaint. And that can come, for example, if there was an insufficient check notice on someone's trust account or somebody gets arrested or a judge makes a referral to the Florida Bar for whatever happens. Those are just some of the examples, but the Florida Bar can initiate its own file and generate that initial letter that we just spoke about based on the information and documentation that's received at the bar. So it's multiple ways. The one thing I would make sure our listeners know is there's no standing requirement to do the request for information to ACAP or file that sworn bar complaint. So the complaint is not likely to come from the client. It might come from the client's family member. It might come from if an attorney were to act extremely unprofessional in court, it might come from somebody who was in the courtroom who wasn't the attorney's client. The requirement, though, is it must be under penalty of perjury. Okay, so that's interesting. So you don't have to be the injured party that was affected by it. So that's good to know. So anyone that's aware of the behavior can trigger the complaint. But then the flip side of this, I have a friend who was a prosecutor for many years and her, (laughs) I told Carl this story, (laughs) we were recently over there and her husband as a Christmas gift had had some of her bizarre bar complaints framed and they put them in the hallway and we were reading them and they were funny, but they were creepy. The bar had forwarded them to her, but had taken no action because they were clearly not based in reality. In fact, they were from defendants she had never had any connection to. How do the intake staff triage all these complaints that come in? And do you get a lot of these frivolous complaints? We get, I I wouldn't use the word frivolous because to me, that's more of a civil standard. Okay. But complaints that, that have no merit or complaints that don't state a cause of action, which is sort of also like a, a civil standard, but we are all trained as bar councils, both the intake up through the bar councils that actually do the trial work and function as the trial prosecutors. They're all trained to review the rules and the rules set our standard. And when you review a complaint, the first thing you look for is that penalty of perjury. And if it doesn't have penalty of perjury, you send a letter to the person who's sending the complaint letting them know it's a requirement by the rule. Your complaint must be under penalty of perjury. If it doesn't come back, that may be a situation where the case is closed. It's just this letter on notebook paper that says, you know, whatever, whatever, and it's not under penalty of perjury. But the other line of review is it has to state, if you assume the facts under penalty of perjury that have been submitted to the bar, if it states, a sufficient basis that there's been a rule violation, that's what generates that letter to the respondent. Because much the same as the radio personality in the olden days, I guess olden days, maybe 70s, 80s, Paul Harvey, where there's the rest of the story, that's the purpose of that letter. So you review it for sufficiency. If it doesn't state a sufficient basis, for example, one of mine early on as a bar counsel was my complainant said she was the queen of England. She wasn't the dead queen. She was the live queen. And we said, that she meant the dead queen was Princess Diana, the way it was written. It didn't really state a cause of action. So I was able to close that one. That might be what your friend had in the hallway. 
Absolutely. So, and back to how these matters are triaged at intake by either ACAP staff or even uh, bar council, if it gets to bar council, um, we've been told and, and from reading and, and talking to you that ACAP council or ACAP staff will attempt to handle or work things like fee disputes out with the attorney and the client directly so as not to have sort of an official complaint or investigation triggered is this often successful? I would think so. Based on the uh, statistics that Christine walked us through, a large number of the requests for assistance, for example, could be my lawyer hasn't called me back in four months. I have no idea what's going on. You could reach out to the lawyer. Your client needs to hear from you. The lawyer reaches out to the client and we never hear from either one of them again. That's a good point. And Carl and I, a lot of people don't realize what we do um, is assist attorneys, like she says at the opening, on the with the business side. So when I'm talking to a young attorney about billing, I will tell them, make your billing detailed because it's communication. So if you've already told your client in the billing what you've done on their case, they're not going to have to call you. And they're less likely to make a bar complaint about you because they see that you're working on their case. Always have a fee agreement. Yes. Don't surprise <laughs> yeah. clients with random fees because they don't know what they don't know. They don't know what's appropriate and what's not appropriate for an attorney to charge. No one is saying that you are overcharging in any way, shape, or form, but the client simply doesn't know. And they may very well up and call the bar. Yeah. And, and, and it's the lack of communication right. that triggers all of this. But what would you say is with a bar complaint that has merit, what is the most frequent root cause of a bar complaint? I actually, in preparation for our podcast, I went through some of my <laughs> materials and cases and hands down, it's communication. Oh, and the interesting okay. thing about that is lawyers are wordsmiths. Our degree is in using our words, both written and oral. Some lawyers don't like to be trial lawyers. They're contract lawyers. So there's their written words. Some of us love to be in a courtroom. Those are our oral words. So how is it that we are not good communicators? I don't have an answer to that one, but, but nearly every single solitary case that comes through has an undercurrent of communication. And that fee agreement, we often will tell people that's the first step in, in good communication because it outlines what the scope of the representation is going to be. So you could gently bring the client back to remember, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Jones, we talked about I was only going to review your documents to see if you had a cause of action. I wasn't going to file anything because that first line of communication shows that including, and this is one thing we love about the, the Practice Resource Center our members don't have to reinvent the wheel every time they need to send a, a letter, a declination letter, a conflict letter. All those materials, even the fee agreement, are there for the members because a declination letter is a form of communication. I can't handle your matter in this case, but maybe I can handle something in the future. Thank you for calling me. Wonderful communication. And, and a lot of it is if you're if you have a successful practice, you're really busy. And I think that it's just that you forget. You did everything you were supposed to do, and then you forgot to loop them in to tell them what was happening. So I, I, it's clear to see why that would happen. It's just it's one of those things that you've got to build into the system. So I'm glad you're mentioning our document library because we do have all of those things to let them know they have the 
disengagement or the non-engagement letter. We have all different versions of it. You can customize them. So yeah, so just if you have those at the ready and you can fill it in to make sure that everyone's kept in the loop, that's very important. And you have proof to the bar that you told the client that you'd that's the big one. Yes. I mean, yeah. you have proof. Hold on to that. So, you have proof. Yeah. Okay. So we've gotten through the complaint process and it seems to have some merit. What happens during the preliminary investigation? Who is conducting that? The preliminary investigation is done by our ACAP lawyers. They're ACAP intake lawyers. And that group of lawyers actually wears what I would consider three hats. The request for assistance hat the ACAP review hat, and then the intake hat. So the cases that actually have merit are reviewed by our ACAP lawyers that are also our intake lawyers. And they may be sending that initial letter that goes out that, you know, gets moved around the desktop a few different places. And that that's kind of backing up. One thing I, I like to tell folks is however it works in your practice, make sure you set aside one hour a week of quiet time to go through the emails, to go through the the U.S. mail, to go through the bank statements. Those are the three big ones. But those cases are reviewed at that intake level. And then that's that measuring stick. Should it be closed? Do we need more information? And our intake lawyers close the bulk of the complaints that come in, the bulk of those sworn complaints. And the ones that it's not clear on its face or need further investigation, those are sent to one of the five branch offices for further investigation by the Bar Council on the branch office. So is that when, because the Bar is a big place, so we don't all know what each other are doing here. So the five satellite offices, if it once it goes to the branch, is that where all the investigators work? I see that listed as a position occasionally, like on our career center, like we have an opening, isn't it? Is that only at the branch level that there's um, those investigators? There the are investigators, right, they're assigned at least one to every branch. There's five branch offices. Some of the branches have more than one, but they're a statewide resource. So if you were in Tallahassee and you needed something, a Fort Lauderdale investigator might help you out with that case. Or the Fort Lauderdale investigator may help your grievance committee if you're in the Tampa office. So it's a, it's a mixed pool of resources generally located in, in one of the branch offices. And I'm, I'm curious because, at, so at the preliminary stage, it's lawyers, they're requesting documents back and forth, they're trying to mediate it if it's, if it's a misunderstanding. But I've heard that the auditors are, these aren't necessarily lawyers, they, they could be like retired police officers because now it's taken a little more seriously. Oh yes, the auditors. So tell us what, who those people are and what they're doing at, the, at this stage of the process. Well, the... the First thing is our investigators are part-time bar employees, and they usually do come with some sort of investigator credentials, retired law enforcement. Uh, in my my prior branch, we had retired FBI agents. We had a retired Secret Service agent who uh, used to tell us about you know his last tour of duty as a Secret Service agent, which is interesting stuff. But they're Folks that know how to gather documents and take information and assist both the bar and the grievance committee with an investigation. The auditors, there's generally an auditor in each branch who is someone who's 
either a certified public accountant, a certified fraud investigator, someone with an accounting degree and credentials, and they review the trust records when the case involves anything related to uh, the trust account or operating account. And just to give our listeners uh, more detail about how the bar is sort of organized, uh, bar headquarters are in Tallahassee, but we keep talking about branch offices and a lot of people have no idea where these branch offices are. So in addition to headquarters being in Tallahassee, we also have a Tallahassee branch office, T-Branch. Then we have a Tampa branch office, Orlando, Fort Lauderdale, and Miami. Um, so we, we span the whole state pretty much. I would say Tallahassee covers the panhandle, but then you have Tampa, Orlando, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, which is actually where the bulk of our members are. There's always going to be a branch office near you. Um, so you, you don't have to worry about necessarily traveling to Tallahassee if you get some kind of complaint or if you have to be a part of this process. There are branch offices, and like Patty said, uh, you'll, you, will, you will be dealing with those branch offices. Um, so if you have any questions about those offices, you can call headquarters. We'll direct you to those offices directly. Or if you need to call headquarters but you call a branch office, they can direct you to headquarters. We are all one big happy family. But at the end of the day, we do function a little bit differently depending on where we are just because we operate like branch offices. Um, so while we're talking about branch office investigations, what are the possible outcomes? When, when we were reviewing all of this information, we went through the lawyer discipline process page on the Florida Bar's website, which we'll link to in the podcast description. But when a case is forwarded to a branch office, there's a series of possible outcomes. Can you discuss those? Certainly. And when a case goes to the branch office, the first step is further investigation. That might be more information from either the complaining party or the respondent attorney or third-party neutral information, court information, um, documents, any, any kind of thing like that. And at that branch level, the case can either be reviewed and closed by the bar council in the branch. It can proceed to the grievance committee for further investigation. And somewhere in the middle there, if the case is such that it requires or looks like it's leaning towards closure, the branch attorney also under the rules can close the case with the assistance of the grievance committee chair. So one of those three things, it'll be closed by the branch attorney. It'll be closed by the branch attorney in conjunction with the grievance committee chair, or it will go to grievance committee for further investigation. And when it gets to the agreement committee, they have multiple options as far as review and closure, but they do the same type of investigation. They look for more information from both of the parties. They um, look at other available information, transcripts, court documents, whatever would be necessary. And then the agreement committee can proceed with their Outcomes. I didn't want to get ahead of your question, but right. <laughs> you know that, that's how that's how it proceeds when it goes to the branch office for review by the bar council. Now, what if it maybe doesn't make it all the way to a grievance committee? What what if it's a very minor violation of a bar rule? Um, is there a diversionary program that perhaps a branch council will direct this member to? Right. And that would be if it doesn't go to the grievance committee, the rules allow that bar council in the branch 
to to work with the grievance committee chair to resolve it as a, a diversion by the grievance committee chair's review of all the documents as well instead of the full committee. And the diversion diversion is similar to the diversion in a criminal proceeding. You comply with whatever the recommendations are, whatever programs recommended, and the case is closed without a finding, uh, similar to a dismissal. And the only proviso with that is the rules have changed about getting a subsequent diversion. You wouldn't be able to get a subsequent diversion for a similar type of allegation or similar type of rule violation until after a period of time passed. Prior to the rule change, you could not have a subsequent diversion at all for a period of seven years. So that is the least restrictive outcome is our, our diversion to a professional enhancement program or a series of professional enhancement recommendations. It could be continuing legal education. It could be any number of different things that are case-specific. And so the diversion, Carl and I actually traveled to one of the branch offices, and that all I can remember is that it was pre-COVID. Could have been, yeah, okay, four years ago. Who knows? I think we were in Orlando, and we went to trust accounting school all day long with the people that had gotten in trouble. They hadn't actively tried to steal client money, but they'd either commingled or they'd bounce checks. I don't, I don't, we don't know all their stories. Some of them wanted to talk to us and it was, it got uncomfortable, but that was their punishment. Their diversion was that they sat with an auditor at the branch office all day long for trust accounting school. And then I also know that they can be assigned to ethics school or ethics CLEs. Um, After they've completed that, what does the diversion, so they complete that, does this stay on their record? I was just about yeah, to ask I'm, that because like, you it, can see disciplinary history on right, a member's profile, right. but or is this, is this like buried if they stay good? What's the process there? Are they in probation with us, but nobody knows about it? Double secret probation? Ah. <laughs> ah, first of all, let me assure our listeners there's no such thing as double secret probation. <laughs> um, although it is it is from one of, uh, one of the all-time favorite clever movies that are out there. Uh, diversion, diversion itself is exactly what it is. Diversion means there was a rule violation identified, but based on all the variables that are used to determine, you know, what should happen with the case, diversion to a professional enhancement program, which is our trust accounting workshop, our ethics school, professionalism workshop, all kinds of different programs, that takes it off the discipline path and diverts it, hence that word, to improve the practitioner, to improve the respondent. And when it's a diversion that's either a grievance committee diversion or a staff level diversion, there is a public record of that file for 13 months. The bar retains its records on cases that are are closed for a period of 12 months and that 13th month they're disposed of. So, the diversion that you all went to, the people that attended that went there as a diversion, a true diversion, there is no public record of it. But in the 13 months from the point of the closure of the case, that would show up as a public record. Diversion does not ever, whether it's staff level, grievance committee level, or even Supreme Court level, because that's a different type of diversion, never shows up under a member's profile on the bar's webpage because that only posts the discipline history. So even if you had a diversion that was 
approved by the Supreme Court of Florida, it's still a diversion. It's not a sanction. So in that case, there would be a public footprint of that diversion on the court's website. There would be a public file with the bar, but there would be nothing under that attorney's profile. Okay. And I forgot about And that's the primarily, like I said, because it's not a sanction. Okay. All right. So professionalism school is the one I forgot about. And this is interesting to me because I know that they have to do that at the beginning of their career. We have a whole professionalism center here at headquarters. And it's interesting to me, the ones I know about where the attorneys are so adversarial, that's what they're trained to do. And then they what my grandmother would call talk very ugly to each other and they're in trouble now. They forget that they can't be so disrespectful to each other. So I think, Carla, we should put that on our agenda. We should attend Definitely. professionalism school and we see how that's something new every day. Yeah. But where I feel like it gets murkier. Okay. So I feel like I've worked at the bar six, six and a half years now. Yeah. Here's the part that's murkier because I've seen it going on, but it's, you know, it happens on our floor. They'll uh, reserve a conference room for a grievance committee. But I read online that there are 81 committees across the state. So are there any guidelines for these committees? Is there consistency? How much power? Who's these, on these who committees? Are they? Yeah. yeah. What, what are these committees doing? This is where, yeah, this is the part I don't totally understand. The easy answer is that grievance committees function um, much the same as a grand jury. Information and facts are presented to them. They conduct their own investigation and, I've heard the phrase, I don't know if I repeat it correctly, that a grand jury could indict a ham sandwich. (laughs) I've heard that, but having been um, a bar counsel for 23 years in a branch office, and I handled three grievance committees, grievance committees are um, created by rule. So anybody who's interested in the specifics, I don't want to bog down our podcast this morning about it, but the, the rules regarding grievance committees are there in chapter three. And it covers what is a quorum. It covers the what constitutes a grievance committee. And the primary thing is a grievance committee is two-thirds lawyers and one-third public members. So that there's a, a blend of different walks of life, different interests, uh, that type of thing. And these grievance committees work in conjunction with the bar, in conjunction with the Board of Governors and in conjunction with the Florida Supreme Court. So I don't know which one of you said, you know, what do they do? What are their powers? The lawyer regulation discipline system is very similar to a government in the sense that there's separation of powers. No one group holds all the power. The bar doesn't hold all the power. The grievance committee doesn't hold all the power. The Board of Governors doesn't hold all the power. The one that holds all the power Um, many members don't realize this, is the Florida Supreme Court. Under the Florida Constitution, they have original original jurisdiction over members of the bar, and they're the ones that created the Florida Bar and hence the lawyer regulation system. So the grievance committee, after the investigation and before they find probable cause, the rules require that a member be noticed of the meeting date and time, the subject matter of the the investigation, the rules that are at issue, and the documents to be considered. And the member is given an opportunity to respond to that probable cause determination. Unlike that 15-day letter that we talked about in the beginning, 
there's no requirement to respond to a notice of probable cause, but it is that last opportunity to be heard by the grievance panel, by the investigatory panel. So kind of operate in full disclosure. There's no hide the ball here. And that's what grievance committees do. And if the grievance committee, for example, believes that what they wrote up and got information from the lawyer makes the case look different, seem different, warrant a closure, they can close it. If it warrants further investigation based on that last bit of information from the lawyer, they can pause and do more investigation. And what the grievance committee does must be approved by the designated reviewer, which is a member of the Board of Governors, assigned to oversee that committee. So yes, while there's 81 grievance committees, that's based on 20 judicial circuits and 109,000 members of the Florida Bar. Think about it. You could not have one panel look at all of those things. So grievance committees are set based on the population in a particular circuit. So our 17th circuit for Broward County, a lot of members, more committees than, for example, up where I'm at in Tallahassee in the second circuit, there might be less committees, not as many lawyers there. So we make sure we've got committees to cover all the circuits. And we have bar council to cover all the circuits. And that's something for our listeners today. If you've been a member of the bar for five years or more, please contact your board of governors member if you're interested and express an interest in being on a grievance committee. That's the same thing as when our incoming president-elect does those committee preference forms. Those names are sent to the designated reviewers because you will learn a lot serving as a grievance committee member. No one person in that meeting drives the bus. It's truly a collective group of, of folks looking at everything and reviewing everything. Long answer. Sorry about that. Not at all. I don't consider that a bog down. I'm always fascinated with the minutia of it. So I have a follow-up question about the grievance <laughs> committees. Okay. And because I do read all of this since my, I, I figured out that I've been I think that I have been in the legal world for 22 years. So I've been reading the Florida Bar News a really long time. So here's what happens. This is my question. In a teeny tiny county, everybody knows each other. I know counties where there's only a handful of lawyers. There's like one county judge. These committees, so I've seen some things come out of the grievance committee where it makes you scratch your head and you may, you think, um, was this committee, were they, was it made up of their neighbors, friends and in-laws, you know, because they were like, it, it sounds like they've done something pretty serious. And then they say, oh no, it's fine. We're just going to tell them to write a letter. You know what I mean? Like it, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the, the crime. So if, if something comes out of a committee that seems odd, is it the designated reviewer? And like, and if there is a conflict, does anyone ever look back at the committee and say, maybe we right. need to what are the reconstitute yeah, this what are, one for this county? What are, what are the checks and balances? Have you seen situations like that? I've read it. I'm not naming any counties because I don't remember, but I know that that's been a situation where the Supreme Court said, what are you thinking? The answer to the checks and balances, they occur completely throughout the case. So going all the way back to our ACAP intake lawyer, he or she is going to look at the file, and when they send that 15-day letter out, that's that first contact with our respondent attorney. The respondent attorney might write back and say, look, the complainant and I 
have 10 other cases together. I feel that this needs to be sent someplace else. Or for example, when you decide as a bar council, a case needs to go to grievance committee. If you're in a smaller circuit or in an area where everybody knows everybody, when you send it to the grievance committee, one of the first things the committee is going to do, especially if it's something high profile, it's been in the media, everybody knows about it. You pull your committee. You need a majority of members that can work together to look at this case. For example, two-thirds, one-third. Average committee's got nine members. If of the nine members, four of them are like, you know, I'm concerned about this, you know, it affects my client down the road or whatever, that may be something that gets transferred to another committee. So it's kind of a case-by-case basis, but there's those checks and balances. It starts with the bar council's review, the respondent can raise an issue, the designated reviewer can raise an issue, the grievance committee as a whole can raise an issue, one of the members can raise an issue, that's the person I've got a case with, I'm going to recuse, which means I won't be present during any discussion of the case or any vote. So there's lots of lots of different ways. It's not necessarily set by procedural rule, but the measuring stick, and this is probably because the Supreme Court gives us a measuring stick, which is our conflict rule, uh, 4-1.7, which talks about 100% duty of loyalty. And that's, you know, you as bar counsel have got to give 100% duty of loyalty to a case. The grievance committee members have that same duty of loyalty. Our respondent attorney has got to balance his or her loyalty to the, the client, if they're still representing that client and the client's confidentiality, with the ability to defend themselves. And there's a rule on that, too. So there's lots of checks and balances throughout the process, even up to the point where formal charges are filed and you're before a referee, which is a county or a circuit court judge. If that happens to be a judge that you know through a case or you know through some other proceeding or you sit on a a voluntary committee with that judge, that may be a situation where that's another checks and balances and the case is assigned to a different judge or even a a different circuit. Okay, that makes sense. So inside this committee, because you described it as a grand jury, can the respondent, they can choose to attend this, can they bring counsel with them? Do they get asked questions by all the members of the grievance committee? Do they get to just make a statement? What is what is one of these hearings look like? Yeah, if they if they're going to show up, what's what's that? What's going on inside? It's a good question. The, The rule talks about a review and a hearing. Pre-1997, all grievance committee determinations of probable cause were part of a live hearing. And since 1997, which I guess has been about 25 years now, the grievance committee has what's called a paper hearing, which means they review it and discuss and deliberate in confidential proceedings before the grievance committee. The um, Respondent can request to attend, but it's at the discretion of the grievance committee and the grievance committee chair. And under the rules, if the respondent is going to attend, the grievance committee wants the respondent to attend that hearing, the complainant has to be invited to that hearing as well. So the majority of grievance committee determinations that are set for that final determination are done 
on the on the papers. And as far as the, taking a statement of the respondent, that is one of the tools that the grievance committee can use. They can take a statement of witnesses, they can take a statement of the respondent, and that is part of their investigative process. I didn't I don't want our listeners to think that there is a requirement that our, our respondent attorneys attend the grievance committee meeting when the determination is made. They can request it, but it is discretionary. So once something has left the grievance committee, let's say, again, there's still a finding of probable cause. The committees believe that perhaps something needs to be filed with the Board of Governors or maybe even with the Supreme Court. What's the process past the grievance committees? The grievance committee, if they, for example, going back to our diversion, if they vote that a case should be diverted, that is still up to the respondent to accept the grievance committee's offer of diversion. So I want to make sure everybody knows that. And if, if the offer of diversion is rejected by the respondent, the case will go back to the grievance committee. In cases where the grievance committee finds probable cause, and that's a small portion of the cases. I think, um, Christine, you walked us through how the, the cases are funneled down. In that small portion of cases where probable cause is found, the rules provide for three important things. Number one, just the filing of formal charges and the case would proceed like any other case. The negotiation of a settlement so that there's no trial, no filing of formal charges. So that's a settlement before formal charges are filed. And then the rules also provide for the respondents either on their own or through counsel to offer back to that grievance committee a finding or resolution of minor misconduct, meaning, yes, there was a rule violated, but it was minor in nature, the harm was minor, so the sanction should be minor, and a grievance committee minor misconduct is the lowest level of sanction that is authorized under the rule. So those three things happen when the grievance committee finds probable cause. And then, so only a small portion are going to move on to a full trial? Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay. And who decides? So if, if they say, I'm not accepting this diversion, the respondent can say, I want a trial? Or how does that work? When the diversion's rejected, it goes back to the grievance committee. Okay. And the grievance committee can determine whether there's additional investigation that's needed. Should it be set for probable cause? Should it be reviewed again for possible closure? So those are unknowns. Most respondents accept the diversion because it is that diversion off the discipline pathway, that opportunity to enhance your professionalism, learn something new. Like the trust accounting workshop, I'm sure most attorneys find that very dry, but it is such a vital part of a practice because you're holding other people's money. It's important to make sure you're doing it the right way because it is other people's money. I love that you say it's an opportunity to learn more. That's a great way to look at it. I <laughs> love trust accounting. Yeah. FYI. <laughs> yeah, we're both into trust accounting. We found it fascinating. I don't think everyone, and they also had to pay to attend that. I do want to 
mentioned that. So when they were assigned to that trust accounting seminar, one of them let us know that they had to pay for it. And I don't, he want, I think they wanted CLE credit. It got murky. I don't know. I, that was the first one it we've got been weird. to. It got weird. They're not happy to be there, understandably, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. it is a sort of critical part of practicing law and understanding how to handle clients' money. I mean, that, that's important. But that's, to me, that's a, another plug for the Practice Resource Center and Legal Fuel because there are CLE courses out there that you could take. I mean, it's not it's not rocket science. We're, we're not, you know, splitting atoms, but the Practice Resource Center has those courses on trust accounting and what you should do and how you should handle the lawyers, the other folks' money that, that comes in. That's why I'm a big proponent of keeping the bar's website open on your desktop, on your phone, on your iPad. There's so much out there that can help you just by using the thumbs. I love that you're plugging our department. Thank you for that, Patty. Yes. Um, and the, but I've told people that the real purpose of our department is to keep you out of trouble. Right. If you call us, we won't even ask your name. We will just get you whatever information you need. We have free CLEs. If you've never done trust accounting, and I know everyone, that's a big, it, like it makes them nervous to even have well, a trust account. Well, because they think it's actual accounting. Like it's it's not, it's well, not, you're not, you don't have to be a CPA. Let's just put it that way. No, no, it's pretty straightforward, but we have free CLEs that will tell you, this is how you open your account. This is how you do it. These are the reporting requirements. It'll walk you through it. If you want more information, we'll stay on the phone with you and walk you through it. We even have free forms if you don't want to get a software program to do your trust accounting. So thank you for saying that. But yes, please reach out to us. I think that we should actually put a link to our trust accounting resources for this one. Okay. So it's gone to trial and you told us before that sometimes those those are like county or circuit judges that are handling these grievance trials that that are called the referees. But And then do those referees determine the severity of the discipline if the person is found guilty. And what are those? I, I've heard of people having to stand for a reprimand in public, but what's the whole span and who is a, determining what what kind of punishment um, if, if they found that, that uh, the person has violated the rule? Well, like I said, the Supreme Court of Florida is not necessarily part of that, that the right. checks and balances that we talked about before because they hold the ultimate authority under the Florida Constitution to determine uh, over membership to determine the appropriateness of, of a sanction. So the referee or the, the, the judge sits as trier of fact and trier of law, but at the end of the day, what the referee does is make recommendations to the Supreme Court of Florida on what should happen with the case. And that's based on the totality of everything. Both sides get to bring in aggravation, mitigation, explanation, whatever, whatever it might be. And it's um, a measuring stick. The rules and the the standards give us guides on what to look at. Any prior discipline, personal or emotional problems, immediate rectification of the situation, lots of variables, but sanction, recommendations for sanction are based on court opinions and court's approval of cases that are similar that have come before the court. So all of that is presented to the referee, and then the referee issues a report, which proceeds to the Supreme Court of Florida. And when it proceeds to the Supreme Court of Florida, unlike a criminal case where the state cannot appeal a not guilty, the the bar has the ability to appeal a recommendation of, of not guilty, whether it's in whole or a part, just like the respondent 
has the ability to appeal or seek review of the entire case, whether it's um, a recommendation of a low-level sanction or a recommendation of disbarment. Because ultimately, the court's authority is to either approve the report of referee or disapprove the report of referee. And sometimes they approve in part and disapprove in part. But after that trial, it's the, the report that is reviewed, the report and the record that's reviewed by the Supreme Court. And the bar, we talked about those checks and balances. The trial attorney alone doesn't make the decision on the review of the case. The Board of Governors is the one that reviews the, the case and determines whether the bar should seek review of what the referee's recommendation is. They do look to the input of the bar counsel. They do read the report of referee. And then the board makes that determination. So speaking of the board of governors, um, we we've kind of gone through the process of the referee's report is filed and sent to the board for review. Um, But on the website, that's important to note, uh, it says that recommendations of the referee or the in the referee's report are not final until approved by the Supreme Court. And then the next step after that talks about uh, the review by the Board of Governors. And you mentioned that the Board of Governors can appeal the referee's decision and they have 60 days to do that. Um, What happens if the Board of Governors disagrees with any aspect of the referee's decision? Um, How how does that move on from there? Then then it's like a typical appeal. Um, Instead of a notice of appeal, the bar files a notice of intent to seek review of the referee's report. And the bar will typically say the the bar is seeking review of the finding of no guilt as to these rules. And the bar is seeking review of the recommended sanction of this. And well, and the recommendation should be that. So we, and and like I said, it's, it's all full disclosure that gets served on the respondent. So the respondent knows the bar's position. And because these are, are, recommendations and the Supreme Court is the court of original jurisdiction. If the respondent were to seek review, the bar could seek cross review. So there could be reviews by both sides for various reasons. And then at this point, so let's say the board agrees with the recommendations. So nobody, the board nor the accused lawyer petitions for review of that referee's report. Then it goes to the Supreme Court, correct? Correct. And then how, like in your experience, I realize it's it's different on, on every, for every case, but uh, how does the Supreme Court then proceed? Do they have hearings? Do they just review the report and make a determination? How does the Supreme Court process work? The Supreme Court, when they get a notice that, that neither side is going to seek review, then the, the report is reviewed by the court and the court has what I see as, as three Path. The first is after review to issue an order approving the report and the recommendation. And it might say the court approves the uncontested report that tells people that neither side contested it. The hybrid is they could approve in part, disapprove in part, and impose a sanction. And then the third one that I've seen in the two and a half years that I've been um, staff counsel, the court can say they're issuing an order to show cause to the parties as to why the report should not be disapproved. Mind you, neither side sought review. Why the report should not be disapproved 
and a stricter sanction be imposed. So that gives both parties an opportunity to be heard by the court as to why whatever the referee recommended shouldn't be enhanced. And both parties will respond. And then the court will take under consideration the referee's report and both parties' responses and then issue a report of referee or issue its order. There are rare times where the court will send it back to the referee for further proceedings, meaning they disapprove the report in toto and send it back for a sanction hearing. Those don't happen very often. Usually they ask the parties to present their position. Thank you. So I I really appreciate now how carefully this is handled. I mean, a lawyer holds their bar admission and, and, you know, it's, it's, allows them to practice. It's the most important thing. And I, I, can, I appreciate that the bar takes that seriously. So this is handled much more in detail, much more carefully than I even realized. Um, so, and I know that disbarment is actually very rare resulting from these cases. It has to be. And there's a difference between disbarment and permanent disbarment, which I always thought <laughs> when they talk about disbarment, I thought, oh, they're done. Apparently, that's not the case. Well, you have to retake the bar exam. So, yeah, there's all these little, if you're the different lengths of suspension, it gets much more detailed. Could be a whole new podcast. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so it looks like we've reached the end of the program. Thank you so much, Patty Savas, for walking us through this today and for joining us. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure to be here. And I hope uh, we've demystified and, um, as you said, Christine, de-terrified the process. (laughs) That's right. Open that letter, call the Practice Resource Center, keep your trust account in order and communicate with your clients. If if that's all you got from this. Call the bar. Any any department at the bar. Call the bar. Yeah. Just like Patty, um, we've had Chanel, uh, Skylar, that's the head of ACAP. These are lovely people that that are here to help you. So that's what we found. Just remember the statistics. I mean, it's 16,000 plus uh, intake Mm -hmm. requests for assistance and only, what, 300 300. or so end up uh, with actual disciplinary action. So call the bar. We're here to help. Excellent. Work it out. So, Patty, if our listeners have questions, how can they learn more about your department or find these rules online? Tell us again the chapters. Um, Chapter three of the rules regulating the Florida Bar is our procedural rule. Chapter four is the rules of professional conduct. Those are the things that we're supposed to do and not do. And more importantly, chapter five governs trust accounts. And I mentioned how the Bar's website is just amazing. Those rules are there. They're updated regularly. So there's a a rule tab. There's also a tab for ethics opinions. And if you put in your uh, search bar, the little question mark on the bar's website, discipline process, everything we've talked about today, including the lawyer discipline statistics is there. So all that information is at your fingertips. Great. And there are excellent resources. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbury. And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bar's podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.